1: Welcome to If-Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
0: And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If-Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New
1: America. On today's show, we'll talk about a new study that suggests the internet might not have played the crucial role in Trump's election victory that we tend to assume. And then, flying cars and self-driving cars. We'll be joined by Justin Ehrlich, who until recently was the head of policy for Autonomous Vehicles and Urban Aviation at Uber. He's now off on a new venture as VP of Strategy, Policy, and Legal for a startup called Voyage. We'll talk to him about his work at Uber and Voyage and get his perspective on the hype over flying cars, or as he might call them, VTOLs. (laughs)
0: VTOL right that's vertical takeoff and or on landing in some way and just to let y'all know you are listening to this episode uh, that was recorded far into the past it was recorded on July 24th uh, and you're hearing it two weeks out that's because we had some travel ahead of us but it's still a great show thanks for tuning in
1: Will, how's it going it's going well thanks April how about you
0: I am doing okay I know that for news this week we actually are going to talk about a bit of academia what's on the plate
1: All right, so there's a new study that was published in the journal Plus One. The study comes from economists at Stanford University and Brown University. And the conclusion, or at least the strong implication of the study, is that the Internet did not play the deciding role in Donald Trump's victory that we sometimes tend to assume.
0: Okay, so we've been talking about how the Internet played a role in the election pretty much nonstop since the election and before the election. So what you're saying is kind of a punch in the gut here. Yeah, it's like the
1: whole point (laughs) of our show, right?
0: I mean, like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, but that's fine. Okay, so so, so what's, what's the conclusion?
1: Right, so, all right, well, let me back up to the methodology, actually. Okay. The, what the study looked at is how did Donald Trump perform among voters who actually use the internet versus voters who don't use the internet? And it gets a little complicated when we dive into the weeds. They looked at three different measures to try to figure out whether people use the Internet. Um, two of them come from a survey called the American National Election Studies. This is a data set da- uh, that goes back to 1996. Um, and then a third one is a model that the, that the authors of the study developed that predicts the likelihood of Internet use for a given person based on their demographics. So, but by all three of these measures, what they found is that Donald Trump actually underperformed previous Republican presidential candidates among people who use the internet, and he outperformed previous Republican candidates among people who don't have access to the internet or don't get news online. So to put that in, in plain English, a lot of the people voting for Trump were not using the internet at all, which makes it hard to believe that the internet was why, or that you know, fake news or Reddit trolls or online misinformation was the reason that they were voting for him.
0: Now, the immediate problem with this study that I'm sure you noticed, too, is that culture doesn't travel in this kind of formulaic way where, oh, I see it on the Internet and therefore I am influenced. People see something on the Internet and then they talk about it and then it becomes news. And then Sean Hannity talks about it. And, you know, things move and flow and with way more freedom than this kind of like formula where you use the Internet, therefore you're influenced by the Internet.
1: Yes, that's an excellent point, and it's the first thing that I brought up on the phone when I had a chance to talk right. to one of the study's authors. Uh, this is Jesse Shapiro. He's an economist at Brown University. He's aware of that, and actually, the study was the paper was written fairly carefully um, to try to to try to sort of hedge. They said, look. The conclusion that the internet didn't drive Trump's victory depends on a few assumptions. One of those assumptions is that the internet affects people's voting behavior only if they're on the internet, um, or that can only directly affect their voting behavior. What you brought up, the point you brought up, would violate that assumption. So it would say, actually, the internet can affect people's voting behavior, even if they're not on the internet, because it shapes how the news gets made. Or, you know, we know that people in the media are on Twitter all the time. So if, as you pointed out, if the personalities on Fox News are reading Twitter all day, using that to inform their newscast, and then somebody at home is watching Fox News, they may have been influenced by stuff that was on the internet, even if they aren't on the internet themselves. So that's a, a fair point and one that the authors do allow for.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me cuz like I don't really enjoy memes very much because my heart is frozen cold, but my friends do. And so they talk about memes and I don't learn about funny things on the internet from the internet. I learn about them because people force me to listen to them talk about them. Um so <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting. What what other holes did you find in this study though? I mean, I think it's 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 important to note that yes, uh, a lot of Trump supporters are not on the internet, but I'm still just not convinced that it wasn't effective. Uh, In part because the Trump campaign spent so much money on it and they were so calibrated with the money that they spent. Uh, You know, we know that there were all kinds of like testing models that they were using to see how well their stuff was getting picked up. And I just don't think they would have kept pumping so much money into it had it not have been doing something right, and and probably a big thing. Facebook spent, I, I mean, rather Trump spent a ton of money on Facebook, like eighty five million, if if I recall. Uh, Teresa Hong, who was one of his, uh, you know, heads of social media, said in a BBC interview last year.
1: Yes, and that is a lot of money. And I, and I, I don't want to portray these as as holes in the study per se, because the, sure. uh, the authors sure. are careful with their. With their conclusions.
0: And they're clearly like very smart people. So but tell me some stuff that came up for you, though.
1: Right. So so uh, another sort of wonky point that I raised is the demographic among which Trump had the most remarkable success compared to prior Republican candidates was uh, whites with white people without a college degree. He just absolutely dominated that segment in a way that that no Republican candidate in modern history has done. That is also a segment that is among the least likely to use the Internet. Um, and so you could say well look Trump was always going to appeal to a less well-educated less high income less internet savvy crowd but because of the way of the dynamics of the internet and because of how his campaign used the internet it might have done much better with those folks than it would have otherwise that's again that's sort of a, a marginal point but I want to get back to the big picture here which is you talked about the large amount of money that was spent in the online portion of the Trump campaign but when you Look at the 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 research communications research on what it takes to persuade people of a different political viewpoint. Eighty five million, or, or you know, whatever the figure might be, however you calculate it, that actually is not enough money to persuade a, a lot of people. At least according to sort of the the traditional understanding of, of how now that that's kind of persuasion. just the
0: Trump campaign though that doesn't include all of the PACs. You know, I think in total over a billion dollars uh, was was spent from you know both candidates. You know, eighty five million is just a, a fraction of that. Sure. And and that's a fair point or in support of both candidates, I should say.
1: Right. And that's a fair point. But but I think what the authors are highlighting is that actually the mainstream media did a lot for Trump, even with people who don't get their news on the internet, um, you know, the proportion of people who rely on the internet as their primary source of campaign news is actually relatively small. I think a, a recent survey showed it was something like 15%, whereas the number who rely on TV news or cable news uh, primarily for, for election information or campaign information is more like 50%. It's more like a majority. Apologies if I don't have those numbers exact. Act. But Trump was a TV candidate, and and he probably won because of his largely because of his presence. On TV, and you know, certainly the internet had an, an influence on it. But I just think it 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 puts in perspective the uh, the the extent to which the inf- internet really influences voting behavior versus all the other channels that were already out there even before Facebook came along and, and changed everything.
0: Quick question of clarification: When we talk about people on the internet, we're talking about including mobile with that too, not just uh, desktop connections.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. And the authors, Did they clarify that? Right. So, so by using three different ways of measuring internet access, they tried to uh, hedge against the fact that, of course, the online population is changing all the time. And there are a lot of people on mm-hmm. phones today, even if they don't necessarily have a laptop that, that's connected to the ethernet at home. They did try to account for that. They admit that the sample sizes are pretty small in these surveys, and they call for more research to be done to, to really understand the extent of the, of the impact.
0: But I do think it's important to note that it's true that local television news is the most consumed form of news in the country. Uh, Pew came out with a study last year that said 37 percent of adults uh, most often get their news from local television news. Uh, cable TV news is trails beyond that. And, and the Internet trails even further beyond that, which is why I'm so concerned about Sinclair, as I talked about in our previous show. And, uh, you know, we do need to, to, to I think, be sure that we have a sober look at, at these uh, questions about, you know, Internet influence and deception and, and how important the Internet is. I still think it's laughable that Mark Zuckerberg did say right after the election that he doesn't think Facebook had really anything to do with it. Uh, that that I, I think has been proven um, at least somewhat untrue or or at least a misstatement in the, in many ways, uh, but uh, but it's it's good to to keep in mind um, that people are getting their information from other ways as well. So this is a, this is a study is a good reminder of that.
1: Yeah, obviously, the Internet is changing politics in profound ways, and, and I don't think this should minimize that. It's just I a, mean,
0: Trump's tweets are on TV, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and that's another that's another way that this is happening. As, as I wrote in my story for Slate about this, I mean, you know, tr- right. Trump tweets and then it dominates the TV news cycle for quite a while. Um, so, so that's another indirect way that the Internet can influence people. Um, but I just think it is good to keep in mind that that ultimately most people are still getting their news uh, about the campaign through TV and not by reading you know scrolling through dank memes on Reddit or, or reading Russian propagandists on Twitter all day uh, in fact Trump Trump supporters were way less likely to be on reddit or Twitter especially than than Clinton supporters were
0: and uh, and thus remember, there was that political story soon after the election that Jared Kushner had made a uh, deal with Sinclair to air uh, Trump interviews uninterrupted. And so Trump was definitely working the TV circuit as well. Uh, well, it's a great piece. And I really do encourage people to read uh, your piece. And, and if they want to dig into the study, they can. But you really sum it up nicely and, and, and talk about all of the things to consider when when looking at this information.
1: Yeah, and I should say the study, the title of the study is A Note on Internet Use and the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election Outcome. Again, the study was in plus one. My slate story about the study was headlined, Maybe Trump Isn't the Internet's Fault After All.
0: All right, folks, check it out. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have our interview with Justin Ehrlich to talk about the future of flying cars.
1: the new Vice President of Strategy, Policy, and Legal at Voyage. That's an autonomous vehicle startup based in Silicon Valley. And when I say new, he's brand new in this role. Up until three weeks ago, Justin was actually the head of policy for autonomous vehicles and urban aviation at Uber, the ride-hailing giant. In that role, he served as something of an advocate for what we often call flying cars. Justin doesn't call them that, I think, and I have a feeling he'll tell us why on the show. Justin Ehrlich, welcome to If Then. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, great to have you. So, so Justin, there's been this sort of slowly percolating hype in the tech world about flying cars, uh, and, and there's been a, a little burst of of coverage recently about Larry Page, the CEO of Alphabet and the Google co-founder, who's been investing in flying car companies. One of them called Kitty Hawk came out with a a demo recently of of a flying vehicle. Uh, they've been doing test flights over Lake Las Vegas in Nevada. What is the point of these so-called flying cars, other than that they sound super cool and futuristic? Uh, so I'll, I'll,
2: tackle, I'll tackle the questions in turn. So uh, I think we don't love the term flying cars because it often uh, connotes more something like you see in uh, Back to the Future. It's driving on a road, and then suddenly it takes off. Uh, I think a more reasonable analogy sort of looks like a a quieter, safer helicopter, where you will be going from point to sort of node to node from, say, a, a skyport uh, from one rooftop to another rooftop. Um, and so it'll look, urban aviation will look very different than we see in the movies um, with the flying car concept. And so that's why it has the really catchy name right now of a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft or VTOL. Um,
1: no, that's not going to work. I'm sorry. You got to come up with something catchier than that.
2: Well, it's funny you say that. So uh, I've actually been uh, pushing uh, for, for uh, a more creative and catchy name. And that's actually one of the things that was uh, occupied a fair amount of downtime from the team was constantly thinking about what's a better name than that. Uh, definitely all the engineers are, are, are fans of VTOL. But I think when you want to sell it to the masses, you'll definitely you'll definitely need to get something uh, uh, a little bit more catchy.
0: So this is different than, say, like with drones where you can take off from anywhere with the vertical takeoff and landing. Well, see. I imagine that it would be that you could also take off from anywhere. But you're saying that this would likely happen at designated locations?
2: Yeah. So I think that that's the sort of concept if you think about it as a real um form of mass transportation in cities and in urban areas. Uh, you can sort of think about it as operating, operating from a bunch of different nodes uh, across the city. Uh, and you would probably walk, bike, or take a rideshare to one of these nodes and then travel to another one. Uh, and so in the end, it sort of um, starts to serve as modular uh, sort of transportation hubs. And you can actually think about how they could start to integrate with with subways, um, uh, with bus terminals, uh, and other areas. And, and I think the reason that they're sort of intriguing is when you think about where we're headed with mobility and cities are getting denser and denser, traffic is getting worse, uh, cities are expanding, there's only so much Space on the roadways to really put so many more people. So one thing you need to do is continue to consolidate and carpool and share on the road. But the other way, and this is why I think urban aviation has real potential, is you can open up three D space, um, and you can suddenly unlock
1: a lot more, a lot more bandwidth and capacity. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say that that the use cases I've heard for. V tolls so far uh, are things like if you need to commute from San Jose all the way to San Francisco, which is like I don't know, that's what sixty or seventy miles in in atrocious traffic, um, or you're you know maybe you're in an exurb of New York or something. Uh, that sounds like the same kind of use case for a commuter train. Uh, but I guess what you're saying is that with trains, you're you're obviously limited to one track. You're you're having to navigate through dense urban environments on the ground, and so presumably you could open up just a whole new you, a whole new way of getting from place to place that, that would have some similarities to trains, but wouldn't have some of the same limitations.
2: That's right. Yeah. So a, a few things. So one, I think, at least at Uber, the the concept is, is probably a range of up to sixty miles. Uh, so I think you're right that the San Jose, San Francisco use case is a is a classic one. I think another classic use case is for really large mega cities, uh, Sao Paulo, Los Angeles, where the traffic is so bad, even going say fifteen miles in some places could take you an hour. Uh, so imagine going LAX to the east of LA. Um, could be an hour and a half in rush hour, 15 minutes by by VTOL. Um, so I think th- that's another sort of use case. It's really solving the problem of long trips, whether they're long trips because of distance, traffic, or, or both. Um, I, I think the reason that I, I think they are can be a complement to, to trains, if done right, is I think what we're seeing in the mobility space is... To truly tackle the growth of the population and the traffic problem, we need to tackle it in so many different ways. So that's why we're seeing scooters, and we're seeing rideshare. Um, we're seeing uh, you know this talk of urban aviation, and of course doubling down on on public transit. I think one thing that urban aviation can offer as a complement to trains is it's uh, more infrastructure light and more nimble. So all you really need to get something like this going is a few skyports on some roofs, and you can build that somewhat quickly. To build a train costs a lot of money and um, uh, involves property rights and and these sorts of things that it takes time to develop, as we're seeing with the high-speed rail, which are incredibly important and the best way to move a lot of high throughput at once. Um, But you really can't have trains go everywhere. So, as a great example, Caltrain is super effective, but it serves really the east side of San Francisco. And um, folks who live in the marina or the west side of San Francisco actually can sometimes spend as much time getting to Caltrain as they would take from Caltrain down south. So, I think uh, it's particularly useful in areas where there's not already a train and you want to um, build something with a little bit more of a capital light model.
0: But, I mean, if you build a train, then you can carry a lot of people. So it seems like that would be a worthwhile, better investment for the city, right? Because, like, with the VTOL uh, device or or piece of transportation, you can only carry, like, four people.
2: Yeah, so that's why I'm not suggesting you don't build trains and instead you do these other things. I'm saying there will be times where um, either, because there is water— you won't be able to build it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or there doesn't seem to be the political capital to build a train on the west side um, of San Francisco, for example. So I I think there tends to be, I've seen in the transportation space, people end up falling very much in one camp of all this or one camp of the other. And I think, like most things, there's a mix of how do you use these technologies together. And that's actually why, uh, in my role, I um, really focused on uh, opening dialogue with discussions, uh, with the city. So, um, we did a lot of engagement, with the city of LA city of Dallas, because ultimately you can't really plan these types of, um, transportation modes in isolation. You basically want to figure out where the most high speed rail trains or the, you know, the commuter trains are going to go or mm. where they think we can go. And then where would you put skyports um, to help complement that, um, so you're serving a few different areas and needs.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess I would just generally be more excited to to invest uh, building that political capital for more public transit. But I, I understand how some people might want um, skyports or, or there could be a mixed use case.
2: Yeah. I, I guess I'd also just say I think we consistently underinvest in public infrastructure and it's a real problem. We're often left. And I think Uber and Lyft are an example of this, of we either really just need to make it happen or we need to start doing some other things in the shorter term. Uh, and oftentimes these two sides get at loggerheads with each other. Um, but I don't see a ton of capital infrastructure dollars flowing. Uh, and so then there's a question for us in communities and societies around, well, how do we wanna respond? Um, so I think more commuter uh, transit is important and I am all for it. Um, I don't see from like a real politik perspective that money flowing anytime soon.
1: And just to clarify, when, you, when you're working on this at Uber, um, it's not like a private helicopter or a private jet, right? It's, it's more like the, the um, Lyft line or the Uber... Uber pool, yeah. Uber pool, where you would uh, sign up to get a, a ride in one of these flying contraptions and then a bunch of other people or several other people would be sharing that ride with you, right?
2: That's right. First of all, uh, kudos to you for avoiding flying car and VTOL with the flying contraption. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Maybe that'll catch on. Yeah. Uh, it's su- super punchy. Very few syllables. I like it. Um, no, I, th- I think you're exactly right. So it'll be it'll operate like an Uber pool. And I think this is one reason um, why I think we're starting to see for the first time it could be a conceivable way to get around the city is uh, the economics really only makes sense when you start to share these things. Um, and they're also probably only to your point earlier around, uh, an effective way of moving people. If you're moving them at least four at a time rather than one at a time. And the only way you can really hope to get that sort of ability to do that is when you have enough density of people on the network, making this, making an ask for this. So you sort of couldn't have gotten to where you are with the potential now, unless you had rideshare ride share and then pooled ride share and sort of changing these behaviors and, um, I think this is sort of another step down the road um, in that development. I, I tend to think of the the flying contraptions, as you call them, sort of where autonomous vehicles were three to four years ago, where people in the industry and engineers thought that this was a real potential, but it hadn't really reached um, sort of uh, a broader uh, acceptance. And I think, you know, in three to four years, people will realize that. That this really could be a thing, um, provided that there are uh, is the right regulatory regime um, put in place to enable
1: it.
0: Uh, I have a kind of a zoomed out question before we get into kind of the the regulatory uh, issues. And and I also want to say that, you know, this technology is being developed and and it's not like we can we can stop it. And, you know, tech is going to progress. And so as since it is being developed, I am glad to hear that you all are in conversation with the cities that uh, it will be implemented in um, because too often these conversations do not um, happen in the same room. Uh, But I'm I'm curious, do these uh, vehicles actually exist yet? I've seen a lot of shiny CGI videos or even some that look kind of real. <laughs> but I, I actually haven't seen one. I also I I, I know the flying sea do that uh, that uh Larry Page is invested in with Kitty Hawk does exist. Uh does does the does the VTOL or contraption or whatever you want to call it, the, the flying car for lack of a better term, exist yet?
2: Yeah, so there's a bunch of prototypes um that different companies are working on. Um and at this point we're seeing there's probably, you know, at least 15 companies working in this. There's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of VC money going for it. So you've got a lot of prototypes and, uh, you know, test flights that have taken off. I think what really, uh, there's a lot of work to be done in developing the battery strength. To have the longer ranges that people are talking about, right? Around 50, Batteries are
0: really hard 50, 50, with flying miles. contraptions. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> because uh, you have the propellers and the weight, and they just it takes a lot of battery life.
2: Uh, yeah. Also, so one of the um, one of the insights is this concept of distributed uh, electric propulsion. Mm-hmm. So instead of one big rotor, you have say eight smaller rotors, and they each operate independently and are powered by themselves so you can sort of reduce the battery you need a little bit but um yeah so i think that that's some of the big work to be done uber i know uh, is really intent on doing all electric on day one and so that for them will be a, a real uh, a real um Uh, Important technology develop. I think other companies are exploring hybrid, Mm -hmm. uh, so that would reduce the battery need. It also has its own um, energy and environmental implications. Um, So I think we've definitely there's been demo flights um, of various uh, various types. I think the the range and the sort of uh, full throated vehicle ready to ready to ready to go is probably uh, you know another couple
1: years off. More from our interview with Justin Ehrlich after a break. that has to be overcome before these things are flying and buzzing all around our cities. Um, But you mentioned that, that these uh, flying vehicles today are maybe where autonomous vehicles were three to four years ago. It's an interesting parallel because obviously self-driving cars have come a long way in the past three to four years. It now seems likely that they'll become a reality in some form or another. They're no longer sci-fi and hype, Um, but the, the, they have run into some problems and, and I guess to put it morbidly, they've run into some people, you know, they've, there have been crashes there there's there was a fatality um, in Arizona famously involving Uber. Um, and there were people who, in retrospect think that Uber moved too fast, um, put stuff on the road before they were really sure it was safe. Is that a fair criticism of Uber uh, first and then then secondly, how do you if so, how do you avoid a repeat? Uh, you know how do, how do folks who are advocating for flying vehicles avoid moving too fast as well? because there's obviously the competition and the rivalries that that push each company to try to get their technology to market first?
2: yeah, so you know I think it's uh, it's certainly fair to say that autonomous vehicle technology is is very complex and operating in these domains. You know there's a the long getting the long tail of all these events right is very hard uh, and will um, continue to take uh, a lot of focus. It's critical to be uh, testing and simulation on closed courses, uh, but there will never uh, need to be testing on the roads as well. Um, and so, uh, companies will uh, need to be doing that, and, and they um, uh, most I think are, are are being you know quite quite responsible in doing so. But it does highlight the importance of the safety driver program um, uh, in in making sure that that companies are. Um, are doing this as responsibly as possible, and, and certainly, you know, I think the regulators in, in the different states and and the um, and the US are all trying to figure out what exactly that re- regime should look like to enable testing. A thing that's interesting about um, urban aviation is, on some level, um, the the operational domain is is almost easier to operate in uh, because you don't have all of the randomness and complexity and um, uh, that happens on the ground, be it um, pedestrians, bicyclists, uh, animals—you um, know, running on the streets. You've got bird strikes, of course, and you've got weather. Um, but uh, in aviation, a lot of uh, a lot of this is already happening. You know, autopilot is used uh, in airplanes almost ninety percent, if not more, of the time. Um, so, in some ways, the complexity I feel is uh, maybe somewhat reduced. Um, in going to autonomous uh, than on the ground. The other thing is actually um, uh, for, at least in Uber's case, and, and maybe others as well, um, not everyone is imagining these flights starting autonomous, but also having uh, pilots at first, uh, which actually I think can serve not only as an important way to um, get from A to B, but as an ambassador for a new type of technology in a similar way that when elevators were first launched, even though you didn't need a person, they uh, they uh, electronic elevators, they still kept a, a, a doorman um, to get people f- to feel comfortable. So so, um, you know, I think that that will actually tend to look a little bit different, but um, it will be critical uh, for regulators to make sure that these things are, um, you know, uh, certified and flight ready uh, before they're before they're being tested. Absolutely.
0: So what's the timeline looking on that? Because I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Uber was saying that they wanted to see this by 2020 or maybe they were even saying that last year. uh or at the last Elevate conference, uh, and that struck me as um, kind of funny because, following the drone industry as I used to for Recode, you can't even fly drones out of line of sight of the operator, and they've been trying to make drone regulations like without a waiver for like seven, ten years. You know, this is you know, you can't even fly a, a drone at night, much less a a something in like this low altitude airspace with people in it. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on the when this will actually happen?
2: Yeah. So uh, I think there's sort of two components to that. One is it goes back to, are we talking about piloted flight versus autonomous? Oh, let's
0: say piloted, because that's probably going to be regulated first.
2: So that's why I bring it up is you can, a helicopter is a VTOL and you can currently travel by helicopter Mm -hmm. uh, in cities. Um, So... This concept actually exists. Okay. Um, The big difference, obviously, from drones and beyond visual line of sight or Bevelos is um, it's, you know, unpiloted. Mm -hmm. So I think that ends up being one big difference. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, autonomous flight, I imagine, is many years out and would require... Drone regulation getting done right and would require autonomous vehicles on the ground getting Massive done right. Massive testing. Yeah. Before, yeah. You know, I think you'll need both of those proof points before anyone okay. would imagine a VTOL being done autonomously. Um, I think separately, um, you can get uh, experimental cert- uh, exceptions for uh, a vehicle to test it. Um, I think, and so that's actually when Uber says trying to um, have things launched by 2020, they mean some experimental flights in their cities. Mm -hmm. For commercial flight, uh, they're talking about 2023. Um, And I think, um, you know, to get to the 2023 will require close collaboration with the FAA and a lot of progress. And as we can see from the drone regulation, that can be um, sometimes very difficult. So I think that will be the, the stretch target. So
0: 2023.
2: Um, that's, that's, that's what they're hoping for. Okay. Um, and that, that is not outside the realm I'm like of reasoning. i counting on my fingers. That's
0: five years from now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you know,
2: there's a pathway to do that if there's a lot of good collaboration. I think the question that's sort of embedded in a lot of this is, yeah what would it take to be at scale, right? Because I think- um,
0: Or even just in LA.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess what I mean is at scale in a city, right? Okay, sure, sure, sure. Helicopters exist now. They're just not at scale. There will be uh, a technology uh, evolution over the next few years uh, that could enable more of this, but then there will need to be a a regulatory evolution. And that will be both at the federal level with the FAA, but also the cities. So cities will need to develop- uh, permits to allow these things to land. So, you know, in San Francisco, for example, you can currently fly a helicopter above the city, but it's actually quite difficult to land a helicopter. Um, so, you know, this will be uh, an ongoing discussion with both the federal government and cities around um, deploying this new
1: technology. So let, let's segue quickly into what you're working on now. I mean, as we've alluded to, one of the big problems with autonomous vehicles, the way they're being done by by Uber and Waymo and the other big players, is that they're trying to make them capable of handling absolutely anything that could come up on any street in cities like uh, Phoenix and uh, Atlanta. And uh, that's just a it's an incredibly hard AI problem. As I understand it, your startup, Voyage, is aiming to get self-driving cars to market more quickly by making the problem an easier one to solve. So you're starting in like retirement communities, right? Like like The Villages is this massive retirement community in Florida. And, and why does that make the problem easier?
2: Yeah, so there's uh, that's exactly right. And I think there are a few reasons um, why it can help de-scope the problem and, and allow to, to launch a little bit earlier. Um, so one is uh, by operating in a closed community. Um, like a retirement, uh, a retirement community, you, uh, sort of limit the operational domain and the, the various complexities. So of course there's things like weather. Um, and so by, uh, starting in areas with, with better weather, that's, that's one thing. Um, you're also, uh, choosing roads, uh, that are wider. Um, and so, uh, there are fewer cars in them, uh, than cities you're reducing the number of, um, Items like bicyclists or or pedestrians in some communities like this, um, but also another big one is speed. Uh, so in these in these communities, you know the vehicles are going to be you know going twenty twenty five miles per hour, um, and what's really great about that is it also reduces. Um, uh, the danger if there might be any incident, as well as, um, you know, reduces or, or increase the amount of reaction time that the safety driver has. Um, and then it also uh, can allow working directly with those communities to help uh, implement infrastructure that can um, be readily suitable to help deploy these things as well. Um, and so you can really create a strong relationship with the, um, the, the community governing body in a way to be more nimble in really, um, and really targeted in, in getting these deployed in a way that you, you, know, you really couldn't expect to do in a large city that's dealing with
1: so many different modes of transportation uh, all at once. Justin, I just wanted to say before we let you go that I love the idea that our grandparents will get the future <laughs> before any of us do. Uh if your if your project succeeds, uh, there'll be uh, elderly folks scooting around in, in self-driving cars long before the rest of us have the chance.
0: I think my dad's gonna enjoy it more than I will anyway. So
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. It's it's one, it's sort of this funny counterintuitive thing. Uh, where the most edgy and cutting edge people will be will be senior citizens, which is sort of very funny. Um, but what I also like about it is. Uh, if you think about who autonomous vehicles can help most, really it's uh, on some level around being able to expand the access to mobility to more and more folks by bringing down the cost. And as we have a rising baby boomer uh, generation, and as we have more and more folks living longer, but uh, really it's not the the safest place for them to be driving or it's harder, it really is going to help a lot uh, more folks at older demographics, really being able to enjoy life in a different way. Um, and so I think there's some, something real powerful about starting to deploy the technology on those who, uh, with those who will benefit from it most. So it really is a sort of tech for people story as opposed to just simply
1: a, a tech for tech story. All right, Justin Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Yeah, thanks for
2: having me. This is great. Enjoy the conversation.
1: All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. Don't close my tabs. We'll be back next week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. We've been getting your emails. Keep sending us your tech questions, show, and guest suggestions. And we swear that one of these days, very soon, we will get to an episode where we uh, go through some of these questions and uh, answer them to the best of our abilities, or maybe even bring in an expert to help us answer one or two of them if we can.
0: You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Orimus.
1: Thanks again to Justin Ehrlich. You can follow him on Twitter at Justin Ehrlich, that's J-U-S-T-I-N-E-R-L-I-C-H. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs.
0: Thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, and thanks for the burrito.
1: Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara.
0: We're going to see y'all next week.